fear not. Um, we're going to spend a lot of time in the Bible, um, but it's a little bit like story time with Uncle Simon today, because uh, we're going to work through some, some big chunks of a wonderful part of Scripture together, um, and, uh, and sort of unpack uh, things as we go. So doing things a little bit differently, but I just, as we, as we dive into Esther together, um, I wonder if you can picture a few uh, scenarios with me just to help us to connect some of what we're going to read um, in such a very different time and place to our own life circumstance. Okay, so a few scenarios. I want you to imagine, for example, that you're moving house and you're working out what your budget is for the new place. How far are you going to stretch to get the place that you really want? It's a scenario that many of us have lived through recently. Uh, Peter and I included in that just, uh, just in a few months ago. Or maybe you're applying for a new job and there are some really good options interstate. How do you prioritise staying versus going? You know, all of the relational upheaval that that brings. Yeah, how do you work a decision like that out? Or maybe your son has the opportunity or your daughter has the opportunity to step up to the next level in, in footy or their other chosen sport, but it's going to mean playing on Sunday mornings. What's going to be your priority? How do you weigh things like that up? Or you're catching up with a few workmates uh, over drinks uh, after work and the gossip is just, it's flying in all directions. What, what do you chip in with? We are constantly making decisions, aren't we? Constantly making decisions. Some of them feel pretty big and sometimes even the small ones, they actually feel like they really matter too. How do we work out which way to go? And sometimes I think we're paralysed with too many choices. Maybe there doesn't seem to be any good options, it's just lose-lose. But often we've got so many great options, it's win-win-win-win, but which one do I actually choose? Well, we are going to dive deep into the book of Esther and see that the central issue of working this out is knowing what your identity is. And it's not just who you are, but whose you are. Not just who you are, but whose you are. The story of Esther, it's such a cracking yarn and we're going to read some big chunks together. So I really want to encourage you to open a Bible and have it in front of you uh, if you're able to or um, because I'm not, I'm not putting it up on screen. Um, I, I want you to be able to engage with it in front of you or at least uh, be able to picture it as I'm reading through with you. So I'll give you a moment um, to turn up to Esther chapter 2, it's page 427 on my Bible may be less than useful to you because uh, your Bible probably has it at a different point. But we're reading from Esther chapter 2 and, and we're picking up the story of Esther just as the action is really building. And chapter 1 and 2 set the scene. Uh, there's God's people scattered far from home under the pagan king Xerxes and we've seen the vanity and the last, the excess of this visible king on full display through this party that he has. But then in incredible and, and, and really grotesque kind of way, as he orders the kidnapping of the beautiful women from right across his empire to, for one, to find the one who pleases him in bed the most, because he wants to make her his, his trophy wife, his queen. We've met our two lead characters, Mordecai and Esther. They've been caught up in this because Esther, well, she's one of these girls taken to the king's palace. Uh, and she and her cousin, Mordecai, are Jewish people in exile in this part of the world. And through all of this, God has been silent. In fact, he's not even been mentioned. His promises seem to have been forgotten, and it almost seems like he's just entirely absent. So, let's read from Esther chapter 2 to see how the action goes. 
When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favour, and immediately he provided her with the beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her from her attendants, uh, so and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what had been happening to her. Well, before a young woman's turn uh, came to go before King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything that she wanted was given to her to take with her into the harem to the king's palace. And and in the evening, she would go there and then in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the time came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, To go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favour of everyone she saw. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Now, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. And during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, The two officials were impaled on poles. All of this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. Now let's pause briefly to note a few things here. To state the obvious, Esther has certainly impressed the king, hasn't she? And among all of the beautiful women of Persia, she's the one that's been chosen to be his queen. But we need to remember what that actually meant for Xerxes. She was his trophy just an object for his pleasure, to be rolled out at his whim, just like he'd done with Vashti, her predecessor. So even as his queen, Esther remains very vulnerable. And we can kind of see Mordecai's concern for her. He's warning her to keep silent about her Jewish identity. And then right at the end of that passage, we read that Mordecai, meanwhile, he's sitting at the king's gate. And that's telling us a lot more than just, you know, Mordecai's favourite coffee, his, his, you know, his, hangout, his weekend hangout place. It's actually his office, And, interestingly, you could go and visit it. 
or at least the ruins of it. If you went to the archaeological site of the city of Susa in modern-day Iran, you can see the foundations of the King's Gate. It's actually a massive structure, about 30 metres by 40 metres, a little bit bigger than the gym behind us here. And that was, if you like, the, the head office of the public service. This is where the king's officials uh, sat to hear complaints and concerns and to make decisions and to pass judgments. So that little paragraph at the end there, setting the scene for where Mordecai is, is, it's telling us that Mordecai works in the public service and he's accidentally heard this conspiracy to assassinate the king, which he passes on through Esther and saves his life. And it sounded brief as we went through, but it's such an important detail as the story moves on because we're about to meet another central character. I'm going to read from Esther chapter 3. See, after these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down and pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, He scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is, the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all of the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different to those of all other people and they do not obey the king's law. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I'll give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of the people of, of each people all of Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors, the various provinces and, 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 and the nobles of the various peoples. Those were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. And the couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. 
All right, we're pausing here again. And again, this week, there's some really important Bible history for us to get our heads around to appreciate just the level of tension that is playing out here. I mean, what is the reason for all of this heat between Mordecai and Haman? Why on earth will Mordecai not bow the knee to honour Haman? Well, in the book of Exodus and Numbers, hopefully, there we are on the screen, we read that when Israel was fleeing Egypt and entering into the Promised Land, the Amalekites, well, they were one of the local people groups who opposed them. They actually engaged them in battle and it was pretty horrific. There was massive loss of life on both sides. And then, hundreds of years later, Saul had become king of Israel. And you might remember when we met Mordecai at the start of Esther, that he was descended from the same clan as King Saul. Now, God commanded Saul to execute justice on the Amalekites for the way that they treated the Israelites by defeating them in battle. And Saul, he, was, he obeyed and he was victorious. But he disobeyed God's particular command to destroy them all, including the plunder. Instead, he got greedy. He wanted to take the best things for himself and he got proud. He wanted to keep their king alive. It's kind of a trophy of victory. That king's name was Agag. Now, when God's prophet Samuel heard all about this, he said, this is, this is not right, you've been disobedient. He came and followed God's instructions through and killed King Agag right there and then. You can read all about this gory story in 1 Samuel 15. But the point is that history goes on to demonstrate that the descendants of King Agag, known as the Agagites, they held a deep-seated grudge against the Jewish people and their God. So Mordecai, from the clan of Kish, descended of the same family as Saul, and Haman the Agagite, they have got family history. Haman's the man with the grudge, and he is the man with all the power. So identifying with God's people is now very risky. We've just seen that even though Mordecai has been open about his own Jewish heritage, he specifically told Esther to keep hers secret. And we will keep that in mind as we see how things unfold. But before we continue, there's just one more thing I want us to note, because the action is about to slow down a lot. You know, you read through a big story like this, and it's so easy to gloss over all of those dates that just get thrown around. It's actually really helpful for us to see that, that they're there to help us to see that things are about to get much more intense. You see, in chapter 1, we were told that this whole story began in the third year of King Xerxes' reign. Then in chapter 2, we just read that Esther's fateful night with him, with that, that was on the seventh year of his reign. And then in chapter 3, verse 7, we read that Haman's evil plot, when he, he rolled the dice, he rolled the poor, that was in the twelfth year of Xerxes' reign. It has taken nine years to get to the end of chapter 3. But now the action starts to slow right down. From the start of chapter 4 all the way through to the end of chapter 8, which don't worry, we're not going to read all of that today. But all of that action takes place over five days. It's like a Hollywood blockbuster that's been giving you the zoomed out, whizzed through kind of introduction and now it all slows down because we need to pay attention to the, the intricate details, the coincidences, the surprises, the ironies that are going to unfold over this period. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm having fun reading this, so I hope it's been good to listen to. We're going to read a little bit from chapter 4 as well, um, as, as we then reflect on, on what God's saying to us through this. So, picking it up from chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, 
He tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly, but he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him everything that happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king, there is but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Now, friends, we are going to stop here. As good as this story is, I want to pause here because this is the big pivot point in the whole story. So it's good to highlight what, what we're actually seeing take place here, what God's saying to us. You see, as we come to this really climactic point, there's a few things that are helpful to see. We've already seen that identifying with God's people, it's a very dangerous thing to do. It's put Mordecai right in the centre of Haman's sights. So what's Esther going to do? She's been quiet about her Jewish identity so far, but she's now faced with a real dilemma. Does she stay quiet, try and fly under the radar, see how that goes and watch her people perish? Or does she come out and identify with God's people and try and use her position to save them? Who can know how this is going to play out? But actually, I think that's, that's another key point that is hinted at through here. Who, who can know? You see, we're meant to see that there are plenty of people who trust that even though he remains hidden, God does know. People like Mordecai. We were told there in a lot of detail that he put on his, his sackcloth and ashes and, and a public display of wailing. That's not just a public display of grief. 
in the culture at the time, that's a public display of prayer. You know, throughout the Old Testament, this kind of public display, it, it demonstrates repentance, humbly calling on God for His help, acknowledging that you don't deserve it, but it is, it's so desperately needed. And in the same way, in, in verse 3, the mourning of the Jews throughout the entire empire, that's not just grief, anxiety, stress, it's prayer. These people trust that God sees and knows and He cares and they're crying out to Him. Even Esther does the same when Mordecai tells her what's going on. When she, she asks Him to fast for her, she's asking Him to pray for her while she prays too. So who does know how this is all going to play out? Well, the narrator wants us to see that even though God hasn't been mentioned, His people, His people know that He is there behind all of this and, and He knows and, and, and they are crying out to Him, expressing their trust in Him. And I think that helps us to understand these final words, this, this conversation with Hathak, running backwards and forwards between Mordecai and Esther. Um, we know that the words of verse 13 and 14 of chapter 4 are vital to the whole story and there's one thing that helps us to see that apart from their content. These are the only words of Mordecai recorded for us in the whole book. Well, he's one of the central characters, right? They're his only words that we're given in quote marks that are sort of indicating not just he said something about but this is what he said. So we're going to have a look at that and, and see that he's effectively saying three really important things. So in, in verse 13, Mordecai warns Esther, don't think that you can remain hidden. But actually, he's effectively challenging us to getting her to think through which identity will define you. Are you Hadassah the Jew or Esther the Persian? Are you woman of God or are you a pagan queen? What's your identity? Okay, then verse 14, Mordecai shows his deep trust in God. And to read it again, he says, If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. They're the words of someone who knows God's promises, that God has promised to care for His people, to, to restore them to His place, to, to bless them through His King. Mordecai knows that for those promises to stand, when if Haman is going to wipe out every Jew in the entire Persian Empire, that's kind of, that's every Jew. So for God to keep His promises, deliverance must come. Well then thirdly, the second half of verse 14, we see, we see Mordecai challenge Esther to act. Knowing that God is the true King, who stands behind everything that's going on, will you act in light of this? Who knows? Mordecai asks Esther. I mean, you know, you don't, you don't know, I don't know, but the hidden God knows. Who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? I mean, we've seen how tenuous Esther's position is, right? It's, it's opulence, but it's kind of oppressive. It's incredible freedoms, and yet she's also really quite vulnerable. And Mordecai says, well, this is your situation. That's what you've got in life. So how will you act trusting God? And I think that's the key question that, that Mordecai poses to Esther. You don't know how things are going to pan out, but you do know the God who is faithful to keep His promises... So will you identify with Him and act accordingly? And the transformation that, that follows in Esther is truly remarkable. I'd really encourage you to read through to the end of the story in this coming week. Because up to this point, she's only been taking instructions from people. 
And, and yet now, she just shows an incredible shrewdness and a courage and she ends up even giving instructions to Xerxes himself. Up to this point, she's been quiet about her identity but here she's already invited her attendees to enjoy, join her in prayer, subtly coming out to them and in, in just a couple of days' time, she's going to be sitting down over dinner with her husband and Haman himself, acknowledging that she is a Jew. So that's the story of Esther so far. And what is God saying to us through all of this? I think it's a really helpful rule of thumb when we're, when we're reading the Old Testament today that we need to read it through Jesus, in light of Jesus. So we need to hear a really blunt you know, encouragement. You and I are called to be more like Jesus. We're not supposed to model our lives off Mordecai and Esther. So don't try and draw a direct line from Esther to us and sort of just draw, rip some kind of moral straight out from it. Because if nothing else, these are two pretty conflicted characters, right? Of which bits would we take and which would we leave? I mean, was Mordecai doing the right thing or the wrong thing to, debate, to disobey Xerxes and refuse to bow down to Haman? I'm certainly not going to be encouraging my daughter to try and sleep with the most powerful man in the land to secure her future. I mean, they're, they're really conflicted characters, right? What do we imitate? Actually, for a bunch of reasons, that's never a good way to handle the Old Testament. But the biggest reason, not just because it's hard and it's confusing, is because we have got to get it into our heads that we are not the heroes of the story. We're not Mordecai and Esther. In a sense, Jesus is, because he is the hero of the story. So the process looks something more like this. We actually allow God, through Esther, to help us to understand Jesus more and then bounce that light off him to help us to understand ourselves and how we should respond. So how does it point to Jesus? Well, at one level, Mordecai, we're seeing him presented as this man of faith facing, facing immense persecution for it. We had that good deed of his you know, standing up for this pagan king, pointing out the assassination plot, and now this righteous man who stood up for this king has just had a death warrant signed by that same king. The, the, the righteous man facing unjust persecution from God's enemies. In a similar way, for all of the moral ambiguity around Hadassah known as Esther, this key struggle for her is whether she will identify with God's people and as such, will she stand in their place and mediate on their behalf? And Esther points forward to Jesus as the courageous mediator who identifies with God's people and stands in our place on our behalf. So I think in all of this, God is using the book of Esther like a giant, a giant floodlight pointing on Jesus so that we would see him in his glory because we take these two very earthy, real characters in the grittiness of life and they help us to kind of appreciate just how unjust this is, just what a wonderful but very risky role in mediation they are exercising to appreciate the glory and majesty of Jesus even more. The one truly righteous man who's ultimately rejected by humanity and takes upon himself even the very judgment of God. He's also the one who mediated with such vulnerability that he didn't just risk his life, if I perish, I perish. He willingly gave his life. He laid it down and he did it to save people like you and me who weren't just innocent bystanders but enemies in our hearts towards God. 
So the first step is we read Esther. As we kind of wrestle with these characters and the wonderful faith of Esther, we need to pause and praise God for Jesus. And then as that light shines on Jesus, God reflects it off him and onto us to help us to reflect on the significance of this story and how it shapes us. And I think that's where those words of Mordecai to Esther do become like God's questions to us. Not because we want to be more like Esther, but because they help us to reflect on what it means to be more like Jesus. Will you identify as one of my people? Will you trust that I am the promise-keeping God who will bring relief and deliverance for my people? And the key question, will you act in light of your identity as one of my children. This is where I've placed you, for such a time as this. So will you act here and now as a follower of my son? Friends, I don't know if you've noticed it, as we read through the New Testament, it came up in the book of Ephesians as we spent the time there, but if we read through any of the New Testament, time and time again, as God instructs his people how to live, how to make their decisions, time and time again, God shows us that knowing who we belong to is the biggest thing that we have to get our heads around. So, for example, in Colossians chapter 3, With all the practical teaching that comes in this chapter about how to live as a Christian, it's grounded on whose we are. Colossians 3.12, sorry that's getting pretty small to read. But therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. And he continues, but it's as God's chosen people. In Ephesians, we saw with three chapters of practical living on on, on being a Christian, all of the decisions to be made along the way, it's all grounded in knowing whose we are. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's Ephesians 5.1. And it wasn't just Paul who thought this really mattered. For example, the Apostle John, in John chapter 3, he's calling his readers to make godly decisions. John chapter 3 verse 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. So this is how we live. And the Apostle Peter encouraged nervous Christians facing all kinds of persecution with this wonderful perspective drawing so many themes out of the Old Testament. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We could go on and on, because it's right through the New Testament, that to be Christian people is to be those who belong to God. We are his. That is our core identity. That is the question that we need to be asking ourselves. What do I do here? How much do I spend on the house? Do I take the job into state? Who do I want to spend my life with? What, what are the sort of the simple things and the big things? Who do I belong to? Now, don't get me wrong. I, I don't presume that that makes all of the questions you know, simple to answer. But I think so often we wrestle with these questions and, 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 and we, we, we look for all sorts of ways that we want God to answer them without pausing to ask that simple foundational question. 
I think this wonderful book of Esther is so helpful in the way that it, it sort of plays this out for us. Brings us to this moment of decision for Esther. God seems hidden. His promises, so fragile. Yet the question that she has to wrestle with is her identity as someone who trusts in the promises of God and lives in light of them as a child of God or a woman of the world. She doesn't know how it's going to play out. If I perish, I perish, she says. That's, that's not fatalism. That's courageous faith. I will do the right thing. I will entrust myself to God, leave my future in His plans. I think in all of the decisions that we face, the great example here is that Esther points us forward to Jesus, the one who ultimately entrusted Himself to His Father to raise Him up, to give Him the glory that He alone was worthy of and calls us to do the same to live in light of that identity, trusting ourselves to our loving Heavenly Father. So friends, last week we were called to to trust in the promises of the invisible God. I think this week we're called to act, to act in light of who we are as His people, trusting in those promises. To use Mordecai's words, who knows how God will use you in the various situations and circumstances of your life. And the wonderful news is that God does and he can be trusted. So now is a time to act. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are Lord of all history, that you are Lord of our lives and yet you are not distant and remote but you are our loving Heavenly Father. What love you have lavished on us that we should be called children of God And yet that is who we are. Father, for all our questions of how we ought to live, please keep bringing us back to that great core promise that we might know whose we are as we seek to live as you would have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.